0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. Meet Ava.
1: Are you attracted to me? What? Are you attracted to me? You give me indications that you are. I do? Yes. How?
0: Microexpressions. Microexpressions? The way your eyes fix on my eyes and lips. The way you hold my gaze.
1: But don't. Do you think about me when we aren't together? Ava is the artificially intelligent robot in X Machina, and like her sci-fi sister Joy from Blade Runner 2049, She is built to please her makers. With technological advancements in the world of computer science and robotics, these fictional characters are coming closer and closer to reality. But could sex robots be a disaster for healthy sexual relationships? Or might they actually help us? In today's podcast, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Computing at Goldsmiths, Kate Devlin, explores the possibilities of sex robots.
2: So I'm here to talk about sex. To start off, I have this quote that I really like, which is by the um, wonderfully named Brian Pfaffenberger. And he says that to create a new technology is to create not only a new artifact, but also a new world of social relations and myths. And this really, really applies um, in the world of robotics. So my background, I'm a computer scientist. I work in cognitive science and AI. I used to be an archeologist, so I'm very interested in this progression of technology. When talking in the pub one night, as philosophers and those types are prone to do, we all got sitting around saying, you know, what What about other things? You know, we've got, we've got computers being creative, we've got computers being assistive. What other human things are there out there that robots can do? And of course, sex came up. So this is an actual ongoing thing, that people are making these sex robots, and I'd like to try and convince you in the next half hour that this is a viable area of research. It's not just a gimmick. Let's see. So in case you think that this is just something really new, that you know, we've, we've kind of gone, oh, the AI community needs spiced up a bit, let's put some sex in it. This has actually been around from pretty much you know, ancient Greece onwards, from the start of history, written history. Now, this is a, a paragraph from a book by a guy called David Levy, who's one of the groundbreaking researchers in this field. And in 2007, he published a book called Love and Sex with Robots. And his work was kind of the first to seriously address this. And Levy says that you know, this is a theme that has run through history, from Pygmalion falling for his chiselled Galatea to Dr Frankenstein marvelling at his monster. I don't actually think that's what happened in Frankenstein. I don't think there was a lot of marvelling at the monster. I think there was more running and screaming from the monster. To the man meets machine fiction of Philip K. Dick and Michael Crichton, humans have been enthralled by the possibilities of emotional relationships with their technological creations. Indeed, they have, and sci fi is, is uh, a pretty good indicator of that. Now, there's a couple of things here that I really don't like in this paragraph, <coughs> and also in the program for this particular talk. Man meets machine. It's a real shorthand trope in AI man and machine hello, what about the women? Uh, And I do get a bit upset about that because that's part of the thing. Part of the thing is that technology is gendered. We have technology like pacemakers that were around for 20 years before a woman could use them because they were built for a man's body. We have phones that are getting bigger and bigger in size, so you have to have a super giant hand to use them. So technology, not necessarily intentionally, but it is often shaped by gender. It is often made by men for men. And that's changing a bit and we're trying to address it. Okay, so going back to these ancient Greeks. And she was just newly married when her husband went off and got himself killed in the Trojan War. And um, she was very distraught at this. And the gods, the Greek gods being the Greek gods, said, well, you can have him back but you can only have him back for three days, right? Because they like doing that kind of thing. So they gave her back a dead husband, and she was, you know, overwhelmed, and then he disappeared again. So she made a wax image of him. And in some instances, it's recorded as a bronze image of him. And the thing is, this was to console her in her bereavement, and the words are she takes it to her bed and interacts with it, okay? And in fact, there is, there is a sexual implication there, and actually that is what happens in the story because someone sees her with this bronze creature in her bed and thinks that she's having an affair. So this is kind of one of the earliest recorded making a human to have sex with. Okay, so on to Pygmalion. So Pygmalion is um, told by, the story is told by Ovid, so it's a, it's a Roman story. And Pygmalion had seen these prostitutes that were spending their lives in what was called wickedness and he was really offended by this. So he was celibate. And um, he decided that he didn't want a woman. He wanted to carve something pure, a narrative of purity here. And so he carved this brilliant snow-white ivory figure. Um, and he fell in love with his own creation. And the gods smiled upon him, and they made her into a wife for him, a companion for him. So he created his own sexual companion. So Hesiod in Works and Days, uh, another bit of early writing, describes Pandora. Now, we all know the myth of Pandora, we may know the myth of Pandora. She was the one with the box, yeah. Uh, open the box, everything went out except hope. Actually, it wasn't a box, it was a jar. Anyway, um, so she was the first, the first woman. She, she is like an Eve-like figure in, in mythology. She is the first woman and they, they created her and they gave her this artificial intelligence, they gave her a voice. And she was known as kalon Kakon, which is beautiful evil. And so that kind of sets the scene for what are we looking at today in terms of this idea of what I'm going to call, for shorthand, a sex robot. So Levy said, um, many who would otherwise have become social misfits, social outcasts, or even worse, I'm not sure what the worse is, will instead be better balanced human beings. So he has this lovely idea, this lovely utopian vision that these robots, these companion robots with which we'll form intimate relationships, will be a brilliant cure. And the world will be a much happier place because all those people who are now miserable will suddenly have someone. I think it will be a terrific service to mankind. Okay? Women, don't get a look in. And actually, that's the way it has been. So the trope is, off this, is usually off the beautiful female robot, the sex bot and she exists in a, in a form to please men. And actually, that's what we've got in the world today, because these things already exist. Sex robots exist. They exist in the form of mechanized sex dolls that are used by men, uh, straight men. So, we've got this very heteronormative view on this. Hands up who has seen the film Ex Machina? Okay, a few of you. I made the mistake doing this talk before of giving away the ending. I will promise not to do that this time, Okay. So what happens? I I normally show the the trailer, and the trailer starts off with a bit that says something about in the battle between men and gods becomes, you know, man and the machine. So we're already looking at this gendered thing. The main robotic character, Eva, um, she's not a sex robot per se, but the character in the film, uh, the main guy who comes in to Interact with her is seduced by by her in terms of he he likes her feminine ways and her charms and all this stuff. And it leads it's a big key part of the story. On talking to the people who were involved in making this film, it's got some really good AI sound theories in it. It's really well based in AI. Murray Shanahan, who's a professor of AI, was the consultant and he's he's Done a really good job with with um, things in the script, and um, Adam Rutherford from BBC Inside Science was doing the sort of sci-fi side of this. They said, "Oh, it's a feminist film," and I strongly disagree. But um, and if you've seen it, you know, make your mind up. But it's about he said, they said you know it's about her using her feminine charms okay and I think that's just <laughs> yeah this is a terrible thing to call a feminist film so one bit of the script that's interested me when I saw it, i had to stop and go what what did they say Nathan is the is the the very powerful uh, software engineering guy who's made this this robot and Caleb is one of his employees he's brought along to kind of let him test the, the scene Caleb says tell me and Nathan says sure Caleb says, why did you give her sexuality? An AI doesn't need a gender. She could have been a grey box. Nathan sits opposite. Nathan, actually, I'm not sure that's true. Can you think of an example of consciousness at any level, human or animal, that exists without a sexual dimension? And Caleb said, they have sexuality as an evolutionary reproductive need. And this is the bit that interests me in terms of cognitive science. So, in artificial intelligence, there's a big goal to come up with a sentient machine. Now, a lot of people want that sentient machine to replicate the human brain. That may or may not be what happens. And it may or not, may not be a, a realistic goal. But one of the things that drives humans, fundamentally, one of the most goal-oriented behaviors that you can have is sex. It's the desire for reproduction. and. That's a, at, a, at a cognitive level, that is what is, is one of the things that our brain is, is telling us to do. And these hormones that are released um, during sexual activity play, uh, you know, they, they really change the way which we feel in the moment. It's a very embodied thing, and, and AI is all about um, looking at how we, we are embodied and how we, s- we feel and experience things through our senses. But there are other aspects to it as well. So there's the sex or sexual behaviour, the sexuality, And there's gender. So there's all these different areas creeping in. One of the interesting things about robotics is the idea of the uncanny valley. And the uncanny valley says that the closer we try and make something look human, the more it repels and disgusts us because we know it's not actually human. Um, And that seems to hold true. There are some, there's a little more acceptance of it these days in the days of better video game graphics. But in general, if we try to make something uh, artificial look human, it often fails, and so we notice it more right from the sort of very basic organisms on Earth right through to, you know, us super-advanced humans, we are all involved in some kind of motivated behaviour, some kind of goal-oriented behaviour, and I want to know how sexual activity shapes that. With these robots, if we can make sex robots, if we can make robots, that respond to us in some way and and, uh, the difference between what I would say would would be a sex toy, a sex doll and a sex robot is this idea of a little bit of machine intelligence, a robot that can respond to its situation. If we can, it might not just be for those internet shut-ins that um, David Levy described at the start because there is scope for therapy, there is scope for surrogacy, there's lots lots of things that we can look at here. So, for example, virtual reality has been used to treat sex offenders. And the way it was used was the sex offenders who underwent treatment were then put into a virtual environment to see whether or not they would become aroused in that environment. So there was no risk to anyone, it was, in, it was all virtual. And so there are arguments, I'm not convinced by them, but there are arguments that you could do this with sex robots and you could use them as a therapy tool. A way on the other side of that, from a therapy point of view, in an unrelated way, is sexual surrogacy. So people who are maybe unable to go out and meet people, who want to have a, some kind of intimate relationship with something, and you know, it may or may not want to be involved in an industry where they have to pay for that, may want to use a sex robot as some form of therapeutic surrogate, surrogate tool. An example of this are these real dolls. I don't know if you've heard of real dolls. They're a bit weird. Okay, so this company called Abyss Creations, which uh, even the name Abyss, because it suggests the uncanny valley, <laughs> It's just <laughs> so it's a human-sized realistic doll um, that you can befriend and, if you want to, have sex with. It arrives in a box like a coffin, and for some reason, I'm not entirely sure why, they put the head separately. Okay, I'm really don't know why, but that's just really creepy, right? So the first thing, and there's there's a lovely video um, that I've seen of someone unpacking this doll, and it is like they put on gloves and they open up the box and it's just like a big long coffin. It's really quite grim. But the designers have said that their products are used therapeutically, so they've been purchased by a nursing association, by prostate cancer survivors, by burns victims, by people with disabilities, and it claims that psychiatrists use them in therapeutic treatment, and that parents have bought them for use by autistic or socially excluded grown-up children. Now, I don't know how much truth is in that. That is the company's claim. Um, I'm not sure what the evidence is. All right, so when I started off this project, because Levy's work um, has been, you know, it it sort of set the scene for all of this, but it was very much this, you know, sex robot as as some kind of sex worker to please males. And we said, no, I think we need to go beyond that. We need to look at all the potentials, and we need to look at it from more than just a straight male view. So, the t- research team I work on has got um, two philosophers who, are, who work on identity and ethics, bioethics. Um, it has a, a law professor in medical ethics, um, a sex psychologist, a cognitive scientist, and me, who's kind of a mixture of cognitive science and interaction so we we thought about this in terms of law and we talked to our law, our team law professor and he came up with a whole list of things because the thing about technology is it can't keep pace so law can't keep pace with technology technology moves so fast and already there has been a prosecution in the u.s from a man who imported a child sex doll okay now this is really problematic what happens when Laws, obscenity laws are broken or taboos are broken because it's already illegal to make obscene images even if it's generated on a computer. It's not just a a film or photography. If you make a, a fake, obscene image, you can be prosecuted for it. So there's a whole, this opens it to a whole raft of different things. What if, and we're gonna presume at this level, there's no sentience in the machine other than it can respond to you. There's no, the robot doesn't have its own mind yet. What if your partner, is having sex with a robot. Does that count as cheating? Could you, further down the line, if they did have some sort of sentience, could you name them in divorce proceedings? Whose property is it? If they had their own mind, would they need to give consent? Could you swap them and share them? Could you let someone else you know, have a go with a sex robot? Bear in mind that most people today, they have a piece of technology they do not like to share, and that's their phone. People get really funny about their phone. They don't want to hand it over to anyone. Um, maybe it's because what's on it, maybe it's just because, you know, it's, it's theirs. But one of the big issues that is, is quite immediate is that if you're using any kind of sex toy, sex robot, anything like that that records data, what happens to your data? Data privacy is a massive issue and even your smart TVs are recording, you know, or what, what's going on in your homes. So what happens? Do you want data like that out there? How is the privacy of that going to be controlled? It's an interesting question. Gender identity politics is a massive minefield, especially at the moment. And I refuse to lift my head above the parapet on Twitter because the the stuff that goes on is just so controversial and and really antagonistic from all sides. As the film Ex Machina said, why did you give your robot a sexuality? Well, why do we gender robots, Okay, So looking at saying that sex is... (sighs) And I don't even want to go down the list of defining all these things because someone's going to call me out on it. Let's say sex is the biological sex you have at birth, gender is the identity you have, and I'm not necessarily... I, I would just get rid of gender anyway altogether. So what, you know, how, if, whether you feel like a man or a woman or something else, and sexuality is your orientation, uh, what you prefer sexually, how do we attribute all of these to robots? Should we gender our robots? Oh, yeah, we do it. We do it all the time. We hear, you know, I talk about, I've got, a, I've got a camper van, his name is Miles, right, he's male. It's, it's ridiculous, but you kind of, you know, you get ships. They call them her, or they call them mcboat McBoatface, things like that. So, you know, we, we, we do tend to give human attributes to machines. If you think about the Star Wars films, right, C-3PO, very obviously a man, a male, RTD2. Possibly a male. BB-8, interestingly, I did read before the film came out, before The Force Awakens came out, I saw a newspaper article that said BB-8 was female. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. Does come across with particularly feminine traits? Because I don't know how you define things like that. Because it seems pointless to define people on characteristics. You know, but And yet we do it. Stereotypes, we do it. A rather wonderful woman, Donna Haraway, came up with an, an essay about cyborgs, using cyborgs, as a kind of a testbed, uh, just as a more of a metaphor for talking about gender and sex and things in particular. And she said, cyborgs might consider more seriously the partial, fluid, sometimes aspect of sex and sexual embodiment. Gender might not be global identity after all, even if, if it has a profound historical breadth and depth. And we are in the middle of a lot of gender identity issues that, and, and exploration that are coming out of that. And these boundaries are already being mirrored. She talks about the cyborg world, where the boundaries are shifting between what is real and what is artificial. In fact, anyone who wears contact lenses can consider themselves a cyborg. You're enhancing yourself with technology. Right, so if we were to build a sex robot, what would it look like? And this is kind of more the kind of fun side of it that we were interested in. How would you design it? And I talked to an artist about this and said, what would you do? And he said, I don't know, would it have hair? And we thought about this, because I don't know, I don't know. Would it it even look like a human? Could it just be a big fluffy cushion? Don't know. Could it be modular? Could you change it um, and put bits in and swap them out? And, you know, who knows? Maybe that's the joy of it. Maybe you hack your own. Maybe you make your own and swap things in and out. A data visualization researcher made a study of a sex toy company, Love Honey. And he looked at one million sales of sex toys, and he looked at 45,000 reviews of sex toys. He managed to then break down to about a 95% accuracy, he managed to work out who was buying what, whether they were male, female, straight, queer, bi, whatever, in relationships, not in relationships, monogamous, non-monogamous. He was able to break that down via the reviews and, and the sales. And he found some very strong correlations in data. He found that men, the classic male sex toys, the fleshlight, for those of you who don't know, the fleshlight is essentially An orifice. That's about it, really. Uh, A rubber orifice. And interestingly, you can get these that are modelled on humans because you can get specific porn star fleshlights that are modelled on actual people. Women's classic sex toy um, is the rabbit, which is essentially a very optimised penis. Right? Uh, Women are not so much interested in reality. Women just. Have more interesting functionality. Um, so, if a man, or a, woman, a man or a woman is going to design a, a sex toy, for, you know, a sex robot for themselves, would that differ by gender? I'm intrigued. I'd like to know. I think this is worth investigating in more detail. So, what happens if we go beyond sex? What happens if robots get the chance to love us in return? Because we can form relationships with machines, but it's not reciprocated. And maybe, just maybe, part of having sex, you know, the fun, nice, stuff, not, not the horrible doing it wrong thing, um, <laughs> the nice stuff is that it's, a, it's, it's filled with a raft of well-being measures, okay, it makes people feel bonded and happy, it releases oxytocin and serotonin and all these wonderful feelings going on, and a lot of that is bonding and some of that comes down to sex, um, and, and so what about love, I'm not, it's not you Sally, it's me, I'm a robot and therefore incapable of love, and Sally says, oh I see, perhaps someday in the future. They're still capable of sex, though. So maybe, just maybe, there is hope that someday a robot can return our love and intimacy. But until then, this is what we're stuck with.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Could sex robots be good for us? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.